you imagine a man and a woman beginning a new relationship with each other? And as time goes by, they're starting to get to know each other better and better. And so finally, that fateful moment comes when the phrase, I love you, is uttered for the first time. Who do you think tends to say that phrase first, the woman or the man? I won't ask for a show of hands, but almost overwhelmingly, and some people have studied this, it's the man. St. Joe's men may be ahead of the curve, but that's what it is. It tends to be uttered first by the man. And I'm not saying that to get into some sort of gender conversation, but there's a difference between expressing something as sort of a foray or a lead-in, a way of hoping to deepen a relationship, and uttering those same words perhaps as the ratification of something which has already undeniably been established. In the Gospel of Mark, and actually it's true of all the Gospels, when we get into the account of Jesus' passion and death and just leading up to that fateful week, of all the characters that we see and those who are so familiar to us and well-known and rightly so, there are these extraordinary figures about whom we know so much and yet at the same time we seemingly know so little. And these are the women of the Passion. And in the Gospel of Mark in particular, at least as our church has chosen to carve it out, right? We could have started at any moment. We all know where it ends. But it begins with this extraordinary unnamed woman. We even learn the name of the guy who owns the house, Simon the leper. We don't know much else about him. But this unnamed woman comes in with this stone jar of very expensive perfume. She breaks it and she anoints Jesus' head with it. Now think about this for a minute. Aside from the extraordinary fact that they all comment on that this is very expensive. Is this really the best way to use it? If you really are a follower of this man, couldn't you sell it and use the money in a better way? But aside from that, think about the tactile, very visceral nature of that encounter. I mean, she wasn't just sort of, as we might do in these COVID days, spraying it on him from a distance. She's anointing his head. I don't know when the last time you poured oil over somebody else's head, but it's hard to do that without getting awfully close. Now think of how Jesus will be handled after that. Think how many times he will be pushed around and handled and stripped and clothed and crowned and crucified and taken off the cross and thrown into a tomb. But before all of that happens, it's this extraordinary scene of him being handled so lovingly. Then, seeing Passion Week unfolds. Think of all the ways Jesus is talked about in the beauty of the way Mark chooses to craft his story. Right on the heels of the anointing of Jesus, we see Judas. He's talking about Jesus. We know his name. The name of Jesus is uttered. And again, we're made to think of value as they're negotiating a price on Jesus' head. That's juxtaposed by Mark poignantly 
but brilliantly right on the heels of also people commenting on the great value of an object. But here, it's not a price put on Jesus' head, it's the inestimable price poured on his head, literally. And then as the scene continues to unfold, Jesus gets talked about a lot by his disciples. But think of how he gets talked about. They fall asleep, he says, can you wake up and stay with me? A little before that, that extraordinary scene at the Last Supper, as they're talking about Jesus and talking to Jesus, how much the focus is on themselves. Someone here will betray me. Oh my gosh, I hope it's not me. Well, I better clarify that by getting it out in the open before everyone else. It's not me, right? Right? It's not me. You don't think it's me. Peter, you will betray me. No, I won't. I insist I will never do it. Is even thinking about Jesus at those moments. And I think we can probably put all ourselves in those scenes, that gnawing sense, what if I'm being indicted here? What if I'm being called out in front of everybody else? And there's that unnamed woman. She couldn't be doing something more public. She couldn't be calling herself out more openly. And yet it seems that's the furthest thing from her mind. And rather than worrying about whether she will be the one who betrays him, she makes it all too clear that she is the one who loves him. What do you say and what do you do? And when you finally do choose to use words, is that simply a hopeful expression or is it a powerful affirmation of what has clearly been shown and been lived? And so then we go on through the crucifixion. Again, Peter is given the opportunity to go to Jesus. Instead, he speaks very vehemently about him. And it's the denial. Don't you know him? Aren't you one of his? Even if Peter didn't run into the court and stand right next to Jesus and say, yes, I know this man, at least somewhat, he could have established that by speaking out in the courtyard. Yeah, I'm the one. I was with him. You're right. Even though I can't get in there where he is right now, I want to make it very clear that we are one. And of course, in that moment, he talks about Jesus without even uttering his name. I do not know that man. I do not know the one about whom you are speaking. And without ever uttering his name, the woman at the beginning is so clearly one with him. And then he's taken down from the cross. Well, from the time that the unnamed woman anoints Jesus, we don't hear about any of the women, what they're doing as he's arrested, as he's scourged, as he's crucified. And then all of a sudden, Mark makes it very clear that they've never left. After Peter has left, after this unnamed figure, tradition has associated him with Mark himself, that guy in the loincloth, they grab him to arrest him, and he literally runs out of his clothes and scatters away naked. Everyone conceivable who has the opportunity to stay gets up and leaves until we're told that someone has stayed, this extraordinary group of women. Now, some of them are named, but even more importantly than that, Mark tells us who they are because he tells us where they're from. 
They've been with Jesus from Galilee, right? Think of your geography. Galilee is way up in the north. That's where Jesus started out. That's where Nazareth is, his childhood. They've known him from his earliest days. Were they close friends of Mary and Joseph? Most likely. But in any event, all through the gospel, everything from the very beginning until the crucifixion, they were with him. They were supporting him. It's as if Mark uses this opportunity to say, I didn't even have to tell you about it. I wasn't even worried about you knowing that they were here at this miracle, they were there at that preaching. Because I want you to know that at that very last moment, they're watching Jesus. And that's what Mark tells us. They were watching him. They were watching him be crucified. They were watching his body be taken down. And they never left. And finally, the very last words of what the church gives us today in our gospel reading. They watch him put, be put into the tomb and the stone rolled across. And if you just let your eyeballs go on to the very next verses, you would see it's the next morning. And some of those same women are coming now to anoint his body. It's this beautiful bookending that Mark gives us. It starts with an anointing and it ends with what is thought to be an anointing. When they're going to anoint the body, and we should realize why that's an extraordinary thing, Jesus was killed as a criminal, and criminals' bodies would not be anointed. They certainly wouldn't be put in expensive rock tombs. But they're going the next morning to see the one they saw go into the tomb, the dead body of their dear friend. And there's no reason to think they loved Jesus any less than that unnamed woman who poured the oil on his head. So maybe just an invitation for us as we go into this holy week. We know what this church will look like a week from today. Maybe it'll be the first Easter in modern history that this church will not be packed to the rafters. If you sign up, you will get a seat. And yet, even though we know what this place will look like in a week, The invitation for this week is to stay here and maybe to let these women, a few of them named, most of them not, let them be our guide for these seven days. And to not be afraid to say, what have I watched all the way to the moment of its death or what I feared was its death? Maybe there's a dead relationship. Maybe there's a long ruptured friendship. Maybe there's something in your life where you so desperately wish there could just be a breath of new life coming into it, a new sense of hope, a newfound sense of a reason to move on. And maybe you've been with it, but you've turned away. It's too hard to look at. Like Peter, or this unnamed figure, just kind of slinking back into the shadows. I don't know about you. I could think of plenty of examples of that in my life. And if we want to let these women be our guide for this week, It's maybe the opportunity to look back at it, to even think about its history. How did the relationship get to this point? Why did I make that choice that I've so badly regretted? How did I ever allow this to go unchecked? Maybe it's an addiction that we haven't wanted to face. Whatever it is, to turn back and let our gaze be fixed there. And to even watch it to the bitter end or what we think is the bitter end or what we've come to believe is the bitter end. We sort of made up our minds to just let our lives go on and 
That's just a regret we just as soon forget. So to go to that very point, even if it's unpleasant, not as an activity in misery or masochism, but a way of taking our faith and saying, okay, if you mean anything, Jesus, then now is the time to show up. If all this isn't just a charade, then let me put it to the test. Peter didn't test it that night. All the other disciples didn't test it that night. They did what you or I have likely done many times in our lives. But these extraordinary women, they didn't do that. These extraordinary women watched the body go in to the bitter end, and the next morning they came not to find an empty tomb. They came to finally express the deep and abiding love that would never leave them, to complete the pouring of oil over the body, which began with the pouring of oil in love on the living Jesus, and now would be the pouring of oil on his corpse. And for them, I got to believe, even if they didn't know that the resurrection had happened, I've got to believe that for them, that relationship would never have become a dead ember in their minds or in their hearts. And how much more glorious for us who know what happened in that tomb. And yet sometimes our humanity can get in the way. So just an invitation, revisit. Revisit whatever it is that's too difficult to look at. Revisit whatever it is that's been so easy to run away from and turn our gaze from. And really put this week before the Lord. It's one thing to say, I love you, as a hopeful expression that things might unfold in a certain way. It's another thing to live, I love you, because no one can ever convince you that you feel or know otherwise.